So it's my great privilege to continue this journey through the Sermon on the Mount. I feel totally inadequate, but it's the great place to be. Because ultimately, in the end, I hope that you can, after leaving the place this morning, understand just a little bit more of the earth-shattering profoundness. I can't quite get my words right. Um, of what Jesus says in just one verse. And uh, I have a bit of a cold this morning, so I'm going to do my best to rein myself in, um, but also to have my mind sharpened. But I want to read just one verse this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The more I have sat thinking about these words, the more I have gone. This is probably one of the greatest statements made in Scripture. And I want to remind you how we got to this point this morning, because it is a new part of what we're entering into the Sermon on the Mount. But the whole Sermon on the Mount is framed by who Jesus addresses it to. And I want to remind you that this sermon is for anybody here. I don't care where you find yourself right now. But if you want to follow Jesus and you want to be a person that wants to make him the pursuit of your life, you qualify for these words. He's addressing anybody here who wants to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Can I say, if you're looking from the outside in, why are we here? I'll ask you the question, why are you here this morning? Is it for the great worship? Is it for the child care? I tell you, when Matthias said this morning, I was like, praise God for creche. Or are you here understanding why you live and breathe? And I'm not joking. You were designed for God. And you're designed to follow the one that he sent, Jesus Christ. And these Beatitudes are a description of the person that's come to that understanding in their life that they live for one person only. His name's Jesus. And this amazing outworking of your relationship with Christ, where you begin to grow in your passion and pursuit of Him, these Beatitudes are these outworkings of that. And let me tell you, they are the only way to a blessed life. Do you believe that this morning? These Beatitudes aren't joking. Nine times it says, if you want to experience what a blessed life means, a happy life, a life fulfilled, a life of meaning and purpose, not an easy life, but a fulfilled life, it comes to these incredible Beatitudes telling you, if you make Jesus the passion and pursuit of your life, you're on good ground. And what these Beatitudes do in us, and remember these Beatitudes are the working of the Spirit. As you are pursuing Jesus, as you are loving Jesus, as you're asking the question, what can I do for you, Lord? How can I love you more? This appetite to be right with Him in every single area of your life. The Spirit is radically transforming you. And you might not see it, but those around you do. And they start to see two things in you. They start to see salt. You taste different. They start to see light. You look different. And can I say to you this morning, don't underestimate what people see around you because of your love for Jesus. And this thing that Mark preached on last week, it's not a timid faith. It's not a timid love. We don't do it in a corner. We don't hide. This faith in Jesus is not a private affair. It is a light on a lampstand. 
It is literally your love for Jesus is going to propel you into people's lives. You're wanting to pray for them. You're wanting to live for them. You're wanting to love them. You're wanting to bring them in. You want to see Christ being the fulfillment of their life as he is yours. And it is an act of faith. Can I say, as good Baptists here this morning, you will hear me preach often say, you're not saved by good works, right? But can I remind you, you are saved for good works. Where you work, live, and play. God has positioned you. And the question of your life is, as a lover, disciple of Jesus, some of us are uncomfortable with that word, lover of Jesus, as a, as a disciple of Jesus, Christ is calling you into a public position where people matter to you. You tell them about what Christ is doing for you. And it's something that is active. You think, how can I serve in order to bring Christ into the situation I find myself in? Friends, that is salt and light. It's the most beautiful aroma, taste in a dead and dying world. Is a Christian in love with Jesus, wanting to introduce people into the same relationship that they enjoy. But can I just pause you for a moment? Because perhaps, like you, we have missed something profound thus far. Do you notice that in this describing of what it's like to live for Jesus and how to find him and all these characteristics of the disciples' life, seen in the Beatitudes, not once, not once has Jesus mentioned the law of Moses. Now, for us Gentile believers, that's not a big deal, right? You don't get me saying... Let me tell you now, if you ever study the law of Moses, we'll be looking a lot different to what we are right now. Nikki would be disqualified because she's wearing two kinds of material. Do you know that? Let me tell you, in this church, praise God, the law has not been handled in a legalistic way. But who is Jesus preaching to here? He's preaching to Jews their entire life revolves around what you eat, what you say, what you do, how you sleep, how you manage your time by this law of Moses. And if you were a Jew listening to Jesus, you'd be asking yourself, man, this guy's describing a life in Christ, a life that lives for God, a life that's being transformed by the power of God at work in the life, and he's not even mentioning the law. And Jesus realizes this. You know, this is, this is profound. Because it's creating a dilemma in these Jewish disciples. They're going, God, Jesus, what are you doing here? You're introducing something that is entirely radical. And Jesus is he's really is saying it is radical to a Jewish person to be told that you do not enter the kingdom of heaven by keeping the law, but by being poor in spirit. Let me tell you, that is a life-changing, earth-rocking sentence. To be told that this entire life that makes that you're blessed in God, you're experiencing the fullness of God, is without the law. Profound. That the righteousness, church, the righteousness you are hungering and thirsting for and that is being produced in you in the last beatitude for which you are persecuted for, it's not a righteousness according to the law. This salt, this light, this impact as a disciple of Christ that you are having, it's not by keeping the law. Can you imagine what these Jewish people were thinking? I'll tell you what they'll think in a bit of local kind of modern day terms. Jesus is chucking out the law of Moses. That's what they would have thought. Now if the Pharisees 
would have gone and said, this guy has to be killed. They would have been really angry. But you would have had revolutionaries going, man, this is awesome. This guy's getting rid of something we hate. They would have thought this. He is rewriting scripture. Not once does Jesus quote the prophets or the law of Moses. And what I mean by that is the law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. Nikki would know this. The Pentateuch, right? Was not the most Bible, was not the most exciting section of scripture to study at college. I can tell you that. The, the prophets are the 31 books. If you compress 1 and 2 Samuel, they're one book in the Hebrew. 1 and 2 Kings is one book, and 1 and 2 Chronicles is one book. 31. This Old Testament. He doesn't mention it once. And these guys are thinking, this guy's rewriting scripture. We've got something radically new in the midst of us here. This ministry is a massive disconnect from what God has been training us through the law of Moses for over 1,300 years. And Jesus, being a good teacher, knows what his teaching is producing in his audience. He knows the kinds of questions. And Jesus says, no. Do not think. I have come to abolish, which means to destroy or nullify the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Can we just pause there for a moment? What Jesus has just said is Radical. And the only way I can explain it is portraying it to you like this. Imagine I stood up after worship this morning and I said, Church, all of these scriptures, they're actually talking about me. You can laugh, it's fine. Maybe it was a bit funnier in my head. Imagine me standing up here and going, I am the fulfillment of everything you have read. In the Old Testament. I've arrived. Here I am. Can you imagine a Jew hearing somebody say that they have come to fulfill the law entirely, and not only the law, but everything the prophets are pointing to. Here he is in the flesh, and he's not ashamed of it. He's not, he's not shy of it. He's saying to everybody there, this is my witness, this is my word. I have come to fulfill this. Secondly, he's saying, Understand my mission. This is unpacking why Christ came. He said, I have come. This is the sole purpose of his coming. It wasn't to give good sermons. They're nice and they're important. It was to fulfill the program, the promise, the prescription of the law of Moses and the prophets. Friends, this, this one sentence it is the most radical thing anybody has ever claimed or said. And Jesus, Jesus is saying that every single dot and comma, which is the next verse, we'll look at it next week. Every aspect of the law, do you know how many aspects to the law there are? Over 2,000 pieces of legislation in Scripture to keep. Every single aspect, every dot and comma, Jesus was going to keep perfectly. He was going to fulfill it. And when he talks about fulfilling the prophets, he's talking about every promise, every single detail of prophecy about the Messiah, he was going to fulfill. Let, let me fulfill. Let me tell you, I'm going to use that old-fashioned word that Lloyd-Jones used. It's stupendous. 
It's amazing. As a Jew, your, your, your jaw would just go, Pah. it is a claim no one had the guts before to ever make. And can I say, the reason why I wanted to just take one verse this morning, it's very tempting to rush through the Sermon on the Mount, but I am just cautious. Because the same thought that these Jewish disciples had about what Jesus was doing is the same thought any thinking Christian has when it comes to looking at this Old Testament. Have you ever had the thought, and I'm being vulnerable here, I have had on a number of occasions, read the Old Testament. I'm not just talking about Psalms. When I talk about Old Testament, many of us just think about Psalms, right? Who of you have a favorite Psalm? I do. I'm talking, anybody here done a study of Leviticus lately? Well done, June. I'm not surprised. Well done. Anyone done a study here of numbers? Deuteronomy. Good. Can I tell you, you're in the few. <laughs> Why is that? Because when we read the Old Testament, I tell you, and I've seen it in, in young believers, the first thing they ask is, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? You ever had that feeling? I tell you, there was a girl that came to faith while I was at Varsity, and I had the privilege of having a friendship with her and talking to her for the first time. She was a Muslim. She was from Iraq. And she had to, I was leading her through the scriptures, and she said to me, Matthew, all I see in this Old Testament is blood. Blood everywhere. I read about this, and through the eyes of a new person, she's going, this thing is hectic. This Old Testament feels different. It almost feels foreign to the new. Anyone thought that before? It's okay. You can say yes. If you ever ask yourself the question, how on earth do I apply this? What do I do with this? The Old Testament feels foreign. In actual fact, can I be honest with you? There was a heresy that came out very early on, which I can totally sympathize with, though I don't excuse. It was a heresy, heretic called Marcion. And he said that there were two different gods. There was the lower god of the Old Testament, and so he said, if you want to follow Christ, you rip your Bible in half, you check out the Old Testament, and you follow the higher God, the New Testament, which is about all gracious love and forgiveness. Have you, any of you ever asked yourself, you don't, might not have the bravery to do this, ask yourself when you've read the Old Testament, this, this feels like a different God. I was speaking to Wendy this morning. She's doing a study of numbers. She said, Matt, this God of the Old Testament is hectic. You can't come up the mountain. You can't touch this. You can't do that. I said to you, Wins, the feel of the Old Testament is different. And for us as Christians, let's get real here. When we start to look at the Old Testament, we think, oh, let me just chop that off and put that aside. We ascribe to the scriptures as a whole, but in practice, we actually deny the authority largely of the Old Testament or its relevance. Not so? Because here we've got Jesus. Surely, having Jesus... Well, we can get on with life now. The New Testament is sufficient. And Jesus says, not only for those early disciples, but in the 21st century, he says, no. The same God spoken about through the Holy Spirit in the inspired Old Testament is the God who sent me to fulfill it. And in essence, he said, if you want to follow me and find me, then you have to follow me through the scriptures. Because they all speak of me. 
Is that your view of the Word of God? You see, it's tempting. It's tempting. And I, I grew up, <laughs> I said often, I grew up charismatic. I grew up like Vickers, right? <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Can I tell you, we are in a, a stage of life, and it is, especially the younger generation, I'm not that young anymore, but I probably was at the front of it, is we have reduced a lot of our Christian authority and experience to, can I use a word to try and to goosebumps? What I mean by that is, we're in a stage of life where this thing, when I'm actually, I'm actually aware of it, when I say we're called to love up, some of us might be thinking, I've got to look for the goosebumps in the way that I feel, in the way that I, I feel about each day, each kind of day-by-day experience of Jesus is this mystical thing. Let me tell you, the presence of the Holy Spirit is real, and He speaks to us. Amen. But let me tell you, the authority of following Jesus I cannot, and the, your authority in your life, the authority of following Jesus are the scriptures. He didn't come to write them off. He didn't come to nullify them. He doesn't excuse and put them aside. He came to fulfill them. And I say to you this morning, it is the challenge to me personally, a Christian who truly loves Jesus and seeks to follow him with their life, inevitably, you will see them loving God's word. This is not some pie in the sky sort of feel-good mysticism. This is rooted in the authority of God's word. And this is my point today. This is my point. Jesus is implying that faithfulness and obedience to God's word is what characterizes his disciples. Why? Because it's what characterized him. If the Son of God had to submit to the authority of Scripture to fulfill it, how much more you and me? What relationship do you have to the Word of God? The Son of God says, I haven't come to nullify it. I haven't come to set it aside. I haven't come to excuse it or over it. I have come to fulfill it. And in that one sentence, Jesus said, Church, Sterling, this Old Testament and new, but particularly the Old Testament, the one that we struggle with the most, it is completely inspired. Every dot, he says in the next sentence, every dot, every iota, every comma, it is inspired by the Spirit in the original text. And if you want to hear the Word of God, it is here written down in ink. It is inerrant. Every part of it is correct. And it is in full authority over the church and over Christ, even himself, when he came to earth. We'll get to the relationship after. Just one moment. We'll get to it next week. But the relevance of the Old Testament to his disciples is he's saying, guys, is when you gaze into the Old Testament, you're gazing into the shadow of me. And if you love me, you will love what I've written in the Old Testament because in there you will find me. And so... Can I just for a moment stop and gaze into the wonder of who Jesus is? Sometimes there's a sermon where you get to be told what you have to do. There's a lot of how-tos in it. Today, I just want to unpack for a second a beautiful few minutes 
of what Jesus is saying when he says, I have come, I have come, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The first is this church. When Jesus says he came to fulfill the law of Moses, it is the greatest news for you and me. Because for the first time, this weight that was too much for any human being to bear, Christ comes every dot and comma, not just the Ten Commandments, but over 2,000 pieces of legislation. This man, Jesus Christ, kept every festival, every Sabbath, every food law, every sacrifice, every moral, ceremonial, and civil aspect of this law, not just for one second, not just for one week, but for 24, 7, 33 years, Jesus Christ kept the law for you. When we sing, Jesus, I sing of what you've done for me, we tend to just think about the cross. Friends, if his life was not perfect in keeping the law, his death would have been insufficient for you. And when we start to think about joy, we think about thanksgiving, think about praise to the King of heaven, we start realizing we're praising a King who's done it all 24-7, fulfilled the law. He's done it all for us. That this morning we can come in so easily. Yes, like Wendy said, that holy mountain on Mount Sinai, only Moses could go up. If you went and touched that holy mountain, you'd die. Friends, we get to experience the presence of God right here. What those Jews long to see, we get to taste. Because Christ was the one who fulfilled the law for us. When you look at this fulfillment of saying not only the law, but because of, he also says, the fulfillment of the prophets. My friend, you cannot not love the Old Testament because you can see your Savior even from Genesis 3 verse 18. Right from the very beginning when Adam and Eve made such a stuff up. They broke everything. They didn't listen to God. What did God say? From you, Eve, the offspring, your offspring is going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to suffer. He's going to be bruised. But watch this space, because over hundreds of years, I'm going to work out my plan of salvation so at the appointed time, Christ is going to come, and he's going to deliver you. This thing that Satan took away, this program of salvation, he's going to get back for the people of God. And I tell you, it is the most awesome journey through the scriptures, seeing Christ unpacked page by page. He's the blessing that comes through Shem, Noah's son. He's the seed of Abraham through which all the families of the earth are blessed. He is the great lion of Judah. He's the one that whom Judah, Jacob said, Judah, you will have a ruler forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the great king from the line of David, the root of Jesse. He's the suffering servant. He's the one whom we call wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, on whom the world, the world, the governance of everything will rest. And he was to be born of a virgin in a backwater town called Bethlehem, called Emmanuel, God with us. Second by second, moment by moment, the Son of God is fulfilling the destiny of the God of heaven for salvation. But friends, he's not finished yet. When he says he is the fulfillment, not only of the law and the prophets, he's saying every picture, every picture of this Old Testament, it's pointing to my son. Jesus says it's about me. When you look, he's the second Adam that's come down directly from God to start a new human race. He's the second Moses announcing God's will from a mountain. Sermon on the Mount. Pronouncing God's commands. He's the high priest of the order of Melchizedek forever offering up his own body and blood and interceding for us. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath the year of Jubilee, the Passover, 
Pentecost, Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement. He is the Passover Lamb for you and me. He is the unleavened bread without any sin that we eat on and enjoy. Friends, this is the glory of Jesus. And he is wonderful. Is there anyone like him in heaven and earth? And disciples, he says, disciples, he's saying, disciples, Sterling, don't you think you can brush this Bible aside because it's all about me? And the preciousness of the scriptures is not because there are some sort of heritage that you inherit or some sort of tradition. The preciousness of the scriptures is they have Christ in every page. And if you want to love Jesus, my friend, you've got to learn to love his word. How precious is the whole of Scripture to you? To Jesus, we will see next week, every dot, every comma mattered to him. And Jesus implies, Sterling, he implies this, if you love me, Jesus says, you will look to these Scriptures to find me. I want to share a story from Scripture that you may have heard me say a couple of times, but I want to train you just with one thing today. It's how to read your Bible. And maybe I will just slot in here because it's a good time to say, Church, can I be honest with you? When I look across the larger church spectrum, and perhaps even amongst ourselves, we are in a bit of trouble here. Because although the Word of God is the most accessible it's ever been, I don't think there's been a time in history when the people of God has been so disinterested in it. And I blame the pulpit for it. I don't blame you. I blame my calling, my, my, my fellow brethren, myself, preachers. Because you see, if you don't train people to look for Christ in the Scriptures, what do you get? You just get Pharisees. They could read Scripture and not think they needed Jesus. And let me tell you, was there, is there, was there anything more in Scripture that was more lifeless, more repulsive, more repugnant than the religion of the Pharisees? The world couldn't stand it. And let me tell you now, the world looks on, in scriptures, on the Scriptures and they disdain them. Why? Because of the bunch of Pharisees that read the Scriptures without Christ. Parents, do you want to raise your children to love Jesus? You show them how to find Jesus in Scripture. Small group leaders, you want to raise people up who love Jesus? You show them how to find Christ in Scripture. If you want to aspire to the ministry, don't take the pulpit unless you're willing to do one thing. Train people on how to find Christ and love Him. I ask you this morning, Sterling, do you believe that the only way to raise disciples, not Pharisees, are being is being able to train whoever is close to you, yourself, to look for Christ in every single aspect and element of God's Word? Why do I say that with such boldness and confidence this morning? Because Jesus Christ said it himself. There were two guys, two disciples, and they were so depressed. Jesus had just been crucified, and they were walking about 12 kilometers from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. And they were just so downhearted. They were so disillusioned. 
And Jesus shows up, but they blinded. They can't see that it's him. And he comes and he chips into the conversation. He says, what are you guys chatting about? And they say, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem? This is how public the crucifixion was, and don't you forget it. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that hasn't heard about Jesus of Nazareth? And they said, it's the most depressing lines of the whole of Scripture. They said, we had hoped. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. They were so depressed and disillusioned because this crucifixion of Jesus had dashed their hopes. And what does Jesus say? He says, oh, foolish ones, foolish ones, slow of heart to what? To believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. It was the greatest expository sermon the world has ever preached. Heard. Can I say to you today, The remarkable thing of this story is not the moment. It's not the moment. When at the communion meal, Jesus breaks the bread and presents the wine, in that moment, their eyes are opened and they see Jesus. Think of the crucified Jesus in the flesh. They don't go in their response. This is what it says. It says, did not our hearts burn? What? When we saw Jesus in the flesh in front of us? No, no. They say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? When last has your heart burned when you've opened up God's Word and you've seen Christ? Friends, this is the way you read your Bibles. You don't go, I've got to do my, my daily reading. You ask, you say, God, show me Christ in this Word today. Give me your living Word. Not just a dead Word, not just a Pharisee Word, not just something I've got to do, something I've got to have to think. No, Christ, Christ. And this is how you read your Bible. And it starts off being a bit difficult. My little girl, Sarah, let me tell you, I have to train her to do everything. And I don't joke by that, literally everything. But if you are committed, with some help, to look for Christ, you learn to develop an instinct inside of you that's well-trained as you read. Can I tell you one of the blessings in my life was Leviticus? He would never say so. But I saw what Jesus had accomplished for me in a way I had never seen before. He's the peace offering. He's the first fruits offering. He's the Passover lamb. It gave me such joy. In Leviticus, where you read at face value, it was so dull. It was so dreary. It was so damnationed, kind of phrased. Here's a Christian, a little guy who's like 20-something, reading this Leviticus and marveling at Jesus. Friends, that's how you read your word. Christ has not come to abolish the law. If you try and follow Jesus outside of Scripture, good luck, my friend. If you do not see that this Scripture, not just one little part, not just your favorite verse, but from start to finish, Genesis to Revelations proclaims the coming and purpose of Christ, you won't see your need for it. But we have the glory and the privilege in these words to look at Scripture with new eyes this morning. And I want to stir, some of you have been around for a long time, I want to stir you up by way of reminder, like Peter said. 
fix your hearts on Jesus, but through his word. You know, my pastor said to me in PE the other day, it was such a rebuke. I, sometimes I walk off the stage, I was so depressed. I get depressed. I don't always think sermons go well. Actually, more often than not, I feel quite vulnerable. And I said to him, after the service, there was one day where, and usually, people came to the front and they wanted prayer after the sermon. I was quite surprised. And I expressed my difficulty of trying in that moment to meet their needs in prayer and, 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 and ministry. And he said something to me that shook me. He said, Matthew, you are not sufficient for these people. Their responsibility is to obey the word. That is the authority. That's what you point them to. You're not the savior. You operate and point them to the authority of their life, the one that the savior submitted to. You point them to the word. You point them to what Jesus says. You point them to this authority over their lives that has power. It divides flesh and marrow. It shapes nations. It raises up families. It brings new things that produce everlasting life. Why? Because as you train people to love God's word, and you teach them to look for Christ in his word, you're giving them a sure foundation. They don't have to call the pastor every time they've got a problem. They are learning what it means to follow Christ through his word. Friends, how precious to you are these scriptures. Let me tell you, they are precious because they contain the wonder of Christ. And this morning, I want to encourage you. Don't <laughs> neglect what Christ calls his disciples to you. To look for him in the scriptures that he's come to fulfill. They all point to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these mighty scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that we can build our lives on them. Lord, they are faithful. You showed their faithfulness and your willingness as a man to live under their authority. You shaped your life. You built your ministry on this pre-work of the Father, announcing to the world through his servants, by the power of the Holy Spirit, his program of salvation. Lord, I pray today for Sterling that might you stretch us, Lord, from not being narrow-minded 21st century Christians where we only see God for the moment and in our need. But Lord, might you stretch us as a church to see the centuries of planning, faithfulness, execution, timing of the God of heaven. God, I pray today for those in trouble. Might they see the people of God have, have been in trouble before. Lord, you know how to rescue us from our iniquities. You know how to rescue us from our difficulties. You split red seas. You gave manna from heaven for 40 years. You know how to cause people to pray and see walls fall down around cities. Lord, you're the God of the Bible. Lord, I pray this morning for faith in the God of the Bible. 
security and authority in the God of Scripture. And all in wonder in the wine that proclaims. Oh God, make us a people hungry and thirsty for Jesus, not just in experience, Lord, but experience rooted in your word. We might grow into the full stature and maturity of Christ. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.